So Luke chapter 22, if you'll turn to Luke chapter 22, third book of the New Testament. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Pastor John will slip you a Bible so you can read with us. We'll begin reading that verse 35. We're going to cover verses 35 through 46. Now keep in mind, as we started Luke chapter 22, we entered into this chapter, that Jesus would say to Peter and John that you're going to go into the city and there you're going to find a man that's carrying a pitcher of water. And go up to him and tell him that the master has need to use your, your guest room. And, and as he shows it to you, prepare for the Passover. Now Jesus has been in his last moments, his last hours with his disciples celebrating Passover. But also his last hours with them before he begins the sufferings of the cross. And so as they would gather to celebrate Passover, Jesus said, oh, how I long with fervent desire to eat of this Passover with you. And they had been arguing about, as we get from Luke chapter 22, who's the greatest. And Jesus, during that dinner, would get up from the table. He would wash the feet of the disciples. And he did it as an example to show them what greatness is according to God's kingdom. And he would also teach them about being great in the kingdom of God. He said that, you know, you're not the Lord over others. And the way the world is, it's better to sit at the table than to serve. He says, I'm serving you. And that's the way of greatness in the kingdom of God. And we know that Jesus, during that time of that upper room, would also institute the Lord's Supper, or what we call communion. And he would take the cup, and he would take the bread, he would divide it among them, and he said, take the cup and, and, and drink, and this is uh, my you know, blood in the new covenant for forgiveness of sin. And then he would take the bread, and he said this likewise, that, you know, take this and this is my body, which is broken for you. And do this in remembrance of me. No longer is it the Passover lamb in Egypt, but now it's the Passover lamb of God who went to the cross for you and for me. And so Jesus here is he's ministering during this time. And, and he would also say that one of you is going to betray me. And they didn't know that it was Judas Iscariot. Even when Judas would get up from the table and he would leave the room. And we know that Jesus also would say that all of you are going to be made to run away uh, from me. And, and there's Peter. He's boasting about, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And Jesus turns to Peter and says that, Peter, by the way, Satan is asking for you. And he wants to shift you like wheat. But I prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Now, when you read John's gospel, John's gospel, I think, gives us a fuller account of the teachings of, of, of Jesus in this upper room, what was taking place, the events of this night before they go to the garden. Matter of fact, John uh, dedicates a quarter of his gospel, five chapters, to what is called the upper room discourse. And when you read John's gospel, you really get a sense of the chemistry and the mood that was taking place in that upper room as they would make their way over to the garden. You sense the confusion and, and how the disciples were troubled in their hearts. Not only is one of you going to betray me, but all of you are going to made to uh, run away because of me on this night. And Jesus very tenderly, very compassionately and, and patiently is ministering to them. He says in John chapter 14, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me. 
And as they're wondering, you know, what's going to happen, not understanding fully what Jesus is about ready to do for them, that Jesus is saying, I'm going to go away and, and you can't come at this time. And, and they're going, we don't know the way. And Jesus said that I am the way, that I am the way, the truth and the life. And no one comes to the father except through me. And if you've seen me, you've seen the father and, and they will know that you are my disciples for your love for one another. We also know that, as I've mentioned to you already, that Jesus tells Peter, who was assuring him that even though all these other guys are going to leave you and run away from you, not me, I'll go to prison with you, I'll die with you, I'm going to stand next to you. And Jesus says, before the rooster crows twice this night, you're going to deny me three times. And so now we're going to see that Jesus is going to leave that upper room with the disciples. He's going to cross the city of Jerusalem, past the temple, across the Kidron Valley into the Garden of Gethsemane. And we know that John chapter 15 through 17 takes place when they leave that upper room. And Jesus in John chapter 15 declares that, that I am the vine. The last of the I am's in, in John's gospel. I am the vine and you're the branches. And as you abide in me, you're going to bring forth fruits. And we talked a little bit more specifically about that on Wednesday nights as we were in uh, Isaiah chapter 5. And, and we saw that God talks about his disappointing vineyard there. Isaiah writing how that there was a vineyard that was planted on the choicest ground and had a wall around it and a tower and water. Everything was given to that vineyard that it may produce good fruit and it ended up producing bad fruit, poisonous grapes. And, and so the Lord was talking about his people that had forsaken him. And you see, Jesus comes along and tells you and I as Christians that we are to bear forth fruit, good fruit unto him. And the way to do that is stay connected to him. Abide in me, abide in my word, and abide in my love. And as you do, that you're going to produce fruit that's going to remain. He says that without me, you can do nothing. So it's really important for us as Christians to continue to abide in Christ. And as we do, fruit's going to be produced in your life. So that's chapter 15. And then chapter 16 of John, he talks about the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to go away, but I'm not going to leave you as orphans. But I'm going to send another. I'm going to send the helper. I'm going to send the comforter. And then in chapter 17, he gives that incredible high priestly prayer that's recorded for us again in John chapter 17. And so those chapters are very unique in the gospel narratives uh, of that night when they leave the upper room and are headed over to the garden. And that's what we're going to see here as we pick up our text at verse 35. They are, are leaving the upper room. They're headed to the Garden of Gethsemane. Let's read in verse 35 of Luke chapter 22. And he said to them, when I sent you without money bag and knapsack and sandals. Did you lack anything? And so they said nothing. And then he said to them, but now he who has money bag, let him take it. And likewise, a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors for the things concerning me have an end. So things are going to be different now, he says. As you went out throughout the house of Israel earlier, 
You received hospitality, but now you're going to go out into a hostile world, so be prepared. And Jesus quoting from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, here in verse 37 that we read, that it will be fulfilled, and he was numbered with the transgressors. In other words, Jesus would suffer and die on behalf of and in place of guilty sinners. That's you and me. The one who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And we read in verse 38, so they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. I think that Jesus, what he was saying here is enough of that kind of talk. It was a way of ending the conversation. Later on in the garden that Peter is going to pull out one of those swords And when they come to arrest him, he's going to cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest. And and Jesus is going to tell him, Peter, put the sword away. You know, you can just picture, here goes Peter. He charges forward, and he starts swinging that sword. And all the guys, and even Jesus probably thinking, this is not good. And he gets the ear of Malchus, and Jesus heals the ear. He says, Peter, put it away. Permit this to be so. And he says, don't you know that I'm going to take on the cup that the Father has given me to drink. And so here we see that as they're headed to the garden, they, they enter into the garden, verse 39. And we read, coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. Now, Matthew and Mark tells us that they come to a place called Gethsemane. Luke tells us the Mount of Olives. That's because Gethsemane is right at the base of that mountain. As you cross the Kidron Valley just east of the temple, they would cross that valley. Uh, they would cross the brook Kidron, and they would come into the Garden Gethsemane there, which was more of an olive grove than a garden. We think of that word garden as a vegetable garden or a flower garden. Uh, this was an olive grove where olive trees were grown. In verse 40, and when he had come to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed. The name Gethsemane means olive press. It was a place where olives were pressed and crushed, and all four gospel writers take us to this place. We are really entering into holy ground. And Jesus would speak to the eleven. He said to them, remember, Judas is gone. He has left them. He's with the religious leaders right now. They are gathering up a detachment of troops that are going to come in just a few hours and are going to come and arrest Jesus in the garden. So Jesus, when he enters into Gethsemane, he says to them, stay here and pray. And then as we put the the gospel narratives together, he would take Peter, James, and John with him. He would go a little bit further. Matthew tells us that. He would say to them that my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Stay here and watch with me and pray. And then he would go a little bit further from them. And Mark then tells us that he would fall on the ground. And this is where Luke picks it up in verse 42, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly uh, than his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, they found them sleeping from sorrow. And then he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. So when you put the synoptic 
Gospels together. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We know that Jesus would catch the disciples sleeping as he prayed, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He comes back. He sees them sleeping the first time. He says, why do you sleep? Rise and pray lest you fall into temptation. We know that he would then go back. He would pray again to his father the same prayer, the same words. He then comes back to the disciples for the second time. They are sleeping. He says, arise and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He goes back a third time. He's praying to his father the same words. He comes back. And they are sleeping. It's the third time that he sees them and catches them sleeping. And he says, arise at that time, for my betrayer is at hand. This garden at Gethsemane was a place where he would go to constantly with his disciples. It was a place where he would go to to pray to his father, as Dr. Luke here says, as his custom was. And that's why Judas knew where he would be, that he would be there. Judas came to the religious leaders, as we saw earlier in the previous chapter, and he said that I will betray him. I will bring you to him away from the multitudes and the crowds, because the religious leaders were afraid of the crowds. I know where he's going to be. He goes to this garden, and he customarily goes there, and he prays to his father. That's where we're going to find them. We'll find them there at night, and you'll be able to arrest him. He'll be there with his disciples. So as I considered that, The thing that I think about is, where do people customarily know that where I'm going to go? Do they know where you're going to go? Especially in your time of difficulty and trouble. Do people know that you're going to be in that place where you're going to be with the brethren? That you're going to be in that place of prayer? That you're going to be in that place of devotion, of worship to the Lord? Do they know where you customarily are going to be in your life? You know, there's, there's new apps that the, the young people have, Snapchat, Map, I guess. You can figure out where people are at. But where do people know that you're going to be in your hour of need, in your spiritual life? Is it going to be, I know him, her. I, I know that they're going to be with the brethren. They're going to be at Calvary on Sunday or on Wednesday nights. That they're going to be in that place of prayer and devotion as your kids see you each and every day. That you're taking that time with the Lord. Or is it do they see you somewhere else? Things get hard and things get difficult and you go to the places of the world. And what my prayer is, is that we would have a place, a solitary place, a place that we can go and be renewed and refreshed in the Lord, and, and that people know that that is a man or a woman of prayer. That is a man or woman that is going to be with the brethren. That is a man or woman that's going to be in that place of, of devotion and service to the Lord. In Jesus, here in this place, Gethsemane, it is a place at this time of agony. He's sweating great drops of blood. It's a, a medical condition that is called hematitrosis. It, it's a medical condition to where when you're under extreme stress, you're so pressed, you're in agony. You're so full of anxiety that you're actually, your capillaries burst in your forehead. And the blood mixes with the sweat, and that's what's happening here. 
And that's what's taking place with our Lord. He says that my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. We cannot fully understand the depth of what he is experiencing here of agony and sorrow, of sorrowful, that he's even sorrowful unto death. And I know that there may be some of you that you're here this morning and you have had your Gethsemane. There may be some of you that are here that you are in your Gethsemane. That is difficulties to where it is extremely sorrowful. That you're feeling very pressed in your soul and in your heart and in your life. That place that is emotionally straining. And you feel like that you are facing that time alone. And no one else can get there with you. You may be frustrated because you feel like no one can understand what it is that I am going through. And you feel like that perhaps even others are asleep that are around you. And you wrestle and you struggle in that lonely and solitary place. But I want to encourage you this morning. That Jesus had his Gethsemane. And he is in agony because he knows the sufferings that he is about ready to go through. But he would take on that cup of suffering and death and he would go to the cross and he would rise from the grave to give us a living hope. And he is not asleep. He sees you. He knows you. He hears you when you cry out to him. He's not asleep. He's at the right hand of the Father and he prays for you and he is the great comforter. I'm reminded of Paul the Apostle as he writes his second letter to the Corinthians. And as he opens up the letter, he writes about that when we came out of Asia, that we were pressed beyond measure. We were even despaired of life. He was in his own Gethsemane. And he opens up that epistle by writing that the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our tribulations, not some, but in all of our tribulations, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And we will, I think all of us, most likely, at some time in our life, in our journey in life, at some point in your life, that you will find yourself in that solitary place that becomes your Gethsemane, where you being pressed beyond measure as you are extremely sorrowful. But I want to encourage you, you go to the Lord who knows what you are going through. The one who can truly give you comfort and strengthen you. Jesus had an angel that was dispatched to to strengthen him, as, as Luke writes here. And you have Jesus who is there to strengthen you. And you know what the Lord also will do? He'll send an angel, and what I mean by that, that person in the body of Christ, as you develop relationship with others, that brother, that sister, you say, oh, they're such an angel. But he will send somebody in the body of Christ to minister to you, to bless you, to encourage you, to pray for you. That's why it's so important that we belong with one another in the body of Christ, that we have those relationships with one another. And as Jesus goes through this point, that he's going to get up 
And he's going to take on the cup of suffering and death. And as you go to the Lord, crying out to him, and as you find strength through him and comfort, the time's going to come, listen, if you are in your Gethsemane, the road is hard and it is long. But as you trust in him and look to him, the day's going to come where you're going to be able to arise from that place. And you're going to be comforted. And you're going to see his faithfulness. And he's going to work in you great faith. And he's going to grow you and mature you during that time. And then the time's going to come where you're going to be a benefit to others. And you're going to be able to bring comfort to them because you yourself have been comforted by God. And you're able to comfort them with the comfort which you have received. The Lord wants to use you. And the Lord wants to use you in a wonderful way. This Gethsemane, there was somewhere a large olive press. Somewhere the olives were, were crushed, that olive press would do that. And it would separate the, the flesh of the olive from the oil. And when we are in our Gethsemane, listen. The flesh is to be separated from the spirit. Because sometimes when we find ourselves in a Gethsemane, in that difficult, hard place in life, we want to respond to it out of the flesh, don't we? We want to respond to it out of our own understanding and our own strength. You know, I'm going through this difficult time. I feel alone. I think I'll go and drink my sorrows away. Or people turn to drugs. Or they turn to the world and the ways of the world. And if you do that, over time, you're going to realize that that is not sufficient for the circumstance that you are in. What you're going to find is going to make it worse. And what we are to do is say, Lord, the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak, is what he told them. And Lord, bring the things of the spirit to my heart and in my life. And I'm going to turn to you. And I may not understand everything that I'm going through. And I'm feeling pressed beyond measure. But I know that you are there. And you desire to work in my life. And you see, Jesus was able to rise because first he had knelt down. Fallen down on his face before the Father. Jesus could find the strength at this moment because he had spent time in prayer. And it's truth with you and with me. You and I will find the strength and the comfort and the wisdom that we need in the Gethsemanes that we face as we fall down to him in prayer and in trust and dependency and surrender. And you then will be able to rise up if first you fall down in prayer to him. Fathers, those of you that are here, you want to be strong for your family in the hard and pressing times? You want to rise up for that occasion, you moms, your grandparents, you who minister to others, then you fall down first in prayer to the Lord and you seek him and call out to him and you will find that he is going to strengthen you to rise up. So here is this prayer of Jesus. Three times he prays, Father, if it is possible, sweating great drops of blood, if it's your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Verse 42. Listen, underline this prayer, will you? He's saying, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. What cup? The cup of suffering and death. You see, this is a very significant prayer. Don't tune out right now. This is the prayer of redemption. 
What Jesus is praying is very important for us to consider. Father, if there is any other way, if it is possible, what is possible? If it is possible for any man, any woman to come to salvation, apart from me going through the sufferings of the cross, apart from me hanging on that cross and shedding my blood for sinful humanity, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering and death pass from me. Do we understand what Jesus is saying? And because he submitted to the will of the Father, he says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He, in a little bit, is going to say, Peter, put your sword away. Don't you know that I am going to drink of the cup that the Father has given to me? Because there was no other way for you and I to have salvation, to be saved. We can talk with people, friends of ours, family members, those that we work alongside of, those that are in our families. And we know that there are many that think, oh, there's all kinds of ways to heaven. If you're a good person, if you're sincere enough, if you're religious enough, if you believe in in this God or that God, you know, if, if this, you're sincere enough, there's people that really believe that the road is wide that leads to eternal life. And Jesus says, no, the road is narrow that leads to eternal life, and there's few that find it. But people are very much confused about salvation. And and there are those that I believe that will come out of churches, even in our own community, that if you ask them, if you die and go to heaven, why should God let you into heaven? You'll come up with, you know, and they'll say all kinds of different answers. They'll say, well, because I belong to this church, or I gave to the church, or I was baptized in the church, or I'm a good person, or whatever it might be. There's all kinds of general opinions about salvation that we hear from others. Listen, I want to make sure that we're clear on it. There's an interesting article I pulled up. There was a survey that was taken by Lifeway Research last year. And they served a general, uh, surveyed the general population here in our nation, 3,000 people that they surveyed. 75% call themselves Christians. So 75% of Americans think that they are Christians. I doubt it very much as 75% of people in our nation are Christians. But people will say that I'm a Christian because I belong to a church or my parents were Christians or some people think because they're Americans that they're automatically Christians. So 75% of people in our nation think that they are Christians but here's the survey as they surveyed the general population that more than half indicated that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. In other words, he is created rather than the creator. The survey went on to say that in the general population that 70% uh, do believe that there's only one true God. But here's the thing. 64% also thought that this God accepts Worship of all religions, including those who believe in many gods. Two-thirds, that's 66%, admit that everyone sins a little bit, but still insisted that most people are good by nature. Now, I want to make it clear, that's not what the Bible teaches, all right? Jesus didn't come to die for good people. He came to die for sinners. And our sin has separated us from God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
And we know that Jeremiah declares that our hearts are desperately wicked. Who can know it? Only God can know it. So here there are many that think that most people are good by nature. 74% said the smallest sins don't warrant eternal damnation. When the Bible says that our sin has caused us and declared us to be guilty. A full 60% agree that everyone eventually goes to heaven. So that's the general population. And I would expect the numbers to be something like that. But here's where it gets interesting and concerning. What they did is Lifeway decided what we're going to do is do another survey. But this time we're going to make it a more stringent criteria. And what we're going to do is only survey those who are evangelical Christians. We're only going to survey those participants who believe that the Bible is their highest authority, who said that personal evangelism is important, that indicated that trusting Jesus' death on the cross is the only way of salvation. This is what they found. It's astonishing. That they found that 7 in 10 evangelicals, more than the population at large, said that Jesus was the first being God created. In other words, they believe that Jesus is created rather than the creator. That's more than the general population. Nearly half agreed that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 56% agreed that the Holy Spirit is a divine force and not a personal being. In other words, they don't understand the Trinity, that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead Trinity. Two-thirds of evangelicals, more than Americans in general, said heaven is a place where all people will ultimately be reunited with their loved ones. So what it tells me is that they're very confused about salvation. They don't seem to think, many evangelicals, that there's a contradiction there that they don't have any problem believing that Jesus is the way to heaven, you know, that salvation comes through faith alone in Christ, but accepting universalism, you know, that we're all going to end up in heaven together. That's confusion. And I'll tell you why I think it's that way. Because number one, that there are more and more pastors behind the pulpit that are saying we're not going to mention sin. We're not going to speak of that word. We're not going to mention sin. And you see, you can't give the gospel message without talking about sin. You see, there's the bad news first before we can receive the good news. To understand why Jesus went to the cross to die for your sins, because all of us have sinned, and that separates us from God. And Jesus, the Son of God, came to take care of the sin problem. Do we understand that? That's why he went to the cross. That's why he's praying, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. There was no other way. And if anybody could be saved by just being a good person or believing in other religions, or the little sins aren't going to damn you, he didn't need to go to the cross. Are we clear on that? I think the second reason why Christians, evangelical Christians, are confused about salvation is because there are more pastors, again, behind the pulpit because they don't want to offend anyone. They don't want to seem, you know, that they're exclusive or anything like that. They'll say, and you got to listen for it, they'll say, for the Christian, salvation comes 
by faith alone in Jesus Christ. For the Christian, salvation comes through the cross of Jesus Christ. What about the Buddhist? What about the Hindu, the Muslim? What about anybody? You see, they got to make it clear that's for anyone, not just for the Christian, but it's for anyone who wants to come to salvation. It comes through Jesus Christ as he said that I am the way, not a way. And I am the truth and I'm the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. That's very easy to understand. But as you are talking with people, listen, they are wondering what makes Christianity unique. You can tell them what makes Christianity unique and what you believe and what you have embraced is that our salvation is not based on what we do. That's what all the other religions believe. It is based on what he did on the cross of Calvary, that he died for my sins. And as I come in faith alone in him, that I am forgiven and The second thing is there's an empty tomb in Jerusalem. And there is no body that is there. And all other religious leaders, they're still in the tomb. They didn't die for you. And Jesus, when he rose from the grave, that it validated what he did, that he is truly the son of God that died for your sins. And he is the way to salvation and forgiveness of sin and right relationship with the Father. So are we clear with that here at Calvary? And that's what you share with others. That's the hope that you give to them. That you tell them that Jesus Christ loves you so much that he came and died for you. And he is the way for forgiveness and salvation. And I know that the cross can be an offense to people. But people who believe that there's other ways to heavens, that's an offense to the cross. And what Jesus is about ready to do is we will continue on in going to the cross and going to that place of execution to die for sinful humanity. In this prayer, he says, Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. You know the verse, many of you. That looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And as we think about that, the joy that was set before him was you. The joy of having you come to God through forgiveness provided by his death and shed blood on the cross. And I love what Jude says, that little epistle at the end of your Bible, right before the book of Revelation. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you faultless before his presence of his glory with exceeding joy. I love that verse because that he is able to keep you from stumbling. And when you go home to be with the Lord... When you go home and see Jesus, that he's going to present you before the Father, and the Father and the Son are going to rejoice over you for the joy that was set before. That's why he went to the cross. The work of his grace, and that's why the psalmist, as we read at the beginning of the service, declaring his marvelous works. But also, I want to give us something else to think about. That the joy that was set before him was also, secondly, being obedient to the Father's will. Because in Philippians chapter 2, it tells us that Jesus humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And of course, everything that Jesus did was in perfect harmony and in perfect will of and obedience of the Father. So I want to bring it home a little bit closer to us 
so we can make application this morning in our own lives. This prayer reminds us that it should be a joy to be obedient to the Lord. And you see, our prayers in life should be, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. And I really believe that is the prayer of the mature Christian. It is a prayer that is trusting him. And we can give him our wants. We can give him our supplications, our requests. And Lord, here's my desire. But ultimately, that prayer ends with not my will, but your will be done. That is the prayer of faith. So Jesus here, we read Matthew and Mark's account. He, he would pray that prayer three times to the Father. He would return to Peter, James, and John, find them sleeping three times. Verse 40, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Verse 46, why do you sleep? Rise and pray lest you enter into temptation. And you see, prayer is not only for our petitioning, but it is also for our protection. Because if I am not praying and you are not praying then I can fall into temptation, tribulations. I'm not seeking the Lord. I'm not watching. You might recall that it was the night before this time that he's on the Mount of Olives. He's given that teaching, the Olivet Discourse, to his disciples about the signs of his coming. And we know that as he's teaching them, he ends that teaching by saying that you take heed to yourselves. In other words, take heed to yourselves spiritually lest you get weighed down with carousing and drunkenness and the cares of this world. And he goes on to say that make sure that you're praying and watching always. You see, he tells me to watch and to be praying and to be sober and to be vigilant. So can I ask us all a question here this morning, including myself? How often does Jesus check in on us and he finds us asleep. He finds us snoozing spiritually. Instead of watching, taking heed to ourselves, as Jesus told us that we are to do, as the New Testament tells us to do, spending time with the Lord, seeking his wisdom and his guidance and his strength. You know, next time what we're going to see is Peter's denial. And we're seeing here the steps that Peter is taking that's going to lead to his denial. And we've already talked about the first one, that he was trying to be strong, wasn't he? He's trying to be strong for the Lord. Even though all these other guys are a bunch of chickens, I'm not going to leave you, Lord. I'll be strong. I'm the greatest. I think that he was arguing that he was the greatest, just knowing Peter's personality that comes through the pages of the gospel. And he says, you can count on me. You can count on me, Lord. I'll never leave you. And even though these other guys will, I'll stay with you. And he was so proud of himself, wasn't he? He was proud like a rooster. And Jesus says, by the time you hear the rooster crow twice, that you would have denied me three times. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And we need to be careful of overconfidence and self-confidence and pride. Second of all, what led to his denial? He should have been watching and praying. But instead he was sleeping. And while he was sleeping, guess what? Jesus is coming back the third time. Here they are sleeping. And I imagine Jesus, as he's watching them, all of a sudden he sees that line of soldiers with torches and weapons and clubs that are coming across the Kidron Valley, coming into the Garden of Gethsemane. While they were sleeping, 
The enemies of Jesus were plotting and planning, and they were coming. And you can always be sure, listen, that the enemy is going to be plotting and planning to come against you and against your family and against your marriage and against your ministry. So while Peter was snoozing, Jesus' enemies were wide awake, plotting and preparing to do him in. It was later on in Peter's life that he would write, you be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Don't go to sleep. Don't have a spiritual life of, of sleepiness and lethargic and snoozing. But you be awake. Listen. Be awake. Stay close to the Lord. Be looking to him. Your confidence is in him, not in yourself. Be praying. Take heed to yourself spiritually. And you're going to see that the Lord is going to bring that protection and guidance. Even as James says, you know, submit to God, resist the devil, and the devil's going to flee from you. But he's plotting. Listen, he's plotting and planning. And he's looking for an opportunity to come at you and come against you, any opportunity that he gets. So don't go to sleep spiritually. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for these words of, that we read in the word, the words of Jesus. And, Lord, that we can get such wonderful understanding and guidance and truth, even as Jesus declared to be the truth. And, Father, I want to, to just pray this morning. If there's anyone that's here in this place or listening on live stream or listening to this message on the radio later, that maybe you're here and you thought, well, I thought I was a Christian. I, I thought I was, you know, a Christian because I've been to church or I belong to a church or I listen to Bible study. All those things may be good, but it doesn't bring salvation. The salvation comes by you recognizing that you are a sinner, just like the rest of us. And that your sin has separated you from God. And that's why the Bible says to repent, turn directions, turn to the cross, turn to Jesus. He loves you. That's why he went to that cross. And he died for your sins in place of you and for you. Your sins were placed upon him as he made sacrifice and atonement for your sin. He cried out, it is finished. I've done the work. He was put into a tomb and he conquered sin and death. And now as you come in faith, believing in him, that you will be forgiven, have eternal life and right relationship with the Father, and you'll have a new beginning, being born again by the Spirit of God. Jesus said, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. Give your life to Jesus. If you're here, you've never done that. You thought, I'm okay, I'm cool. But you've never called out to him and asked for forgiveness and surrendered your life to him. We want to give you that opportunity right now. Don't leave this place if you're not right with God or you're not sure. Because tomorrow isn't promised to any of us. You can be sure right now you've heard the gospel. Come to Jesus. He loves you. He wants to give you life and life abundantly. You pray right where you are. That Jesus, I come to you and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on the cross for me. 
I thank you for that. But Lord, that you rose from the grave and you're alive because you're speaking to me. And I open my heart to you for you to sit upon the throne of my heart and my life as my personal Lord and Savior. And I want to know you and walk with you. And I thank you for this new beginning. And I thank you for saving me and hearing my prayer and dying for me in Jesus' name. And if anybody here, if you prayed that prayer, I want to pray for you. Will you just put your hand up and put it back down? Anybody at all at this time? God bless you. I see you. Anybody else? Maybe there are those, Lord, that I don't see that are making decisions this morning, just as they have been in the previous services. And Lord, I thank you for the work that you're doing in the hearts of your people. The ones that have made decisions for Christ, and there may be others, that, Lord, that they would have the assurance that your word is true. And they would walk out of here rejoicing. Fill them with your love, with your spirit. And to grow them in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through your word. And Father, for all of us, I, I pray for particularly those who may find themselves in their Gethsemane right now. That you would give them the strength and the comfort that they need. And the assurance that you're with them. And that you promise to work in their lives. And not to fall back on their own understanding. But to trust in you in all their ways. Committed to you. And to fall back on the things they can understand. That you promise that you will work for good somehow, some way. And that they can look to you to be their refuge and strength in time of trouble. Lord, do that work in the hearts of your people. May we all go out of here rejoicing because we've been here. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. God is good, isn't he?